Thank you, Steve and worship team. Good morning, Wellspring family and friends. Hosanna! Of course, now that I have it, I don't have my branch with me anymore. Okay, this comes from trees, right? <laughs> it's good to be with you on this Palm Sunday day. And thanks to Keith for that story, that story where there's disappointment and also surprise and God's goodness running in it, running through it. Um, actually, this, this Sunday, we're going to be looking at the portion of Joseph's story where there's, he comes face to face with the disappointment and loss that he's kind of been kind of on the side burner for a while. See, over the, the last, um, it hasn't been 40 days yet, but we're getting close to it. In the season of Lent, which is the 40 days leading up to Easter, we've been going through the story of Joseph. And we've been looking at how, from the very beginning of his story, God was working for good. And um, I'll, I'll give you more context to the story later. But first, I, as I was thinking about disappointment this week, I have to share with you some, of course, some cartoons I found. So um, I don't have very many this week, but uh, the first one comes from Calvin and Hobbes. I loved, I loved this uh, comic strip when I was a kid. And um, Calvin is talking about disappointment. Um, and he says this to Hobbes. Uh, so Calvin, he's a little boy. He says, I've decided to stop caring about things. If you care, you just get disappointed all the time. If you don't care... Nothing matters, so you're never upset. From now on, my rallying cry is, so what? And Hobbes, you know, thinks and says, that's a tough cry to rally around. And Calvin says, so what? <laughs> He's living it out already. And the next one is a little shorter than this. Just a little, a little, this is the sort of thing I send Dan. Like, he gets lots of texts like this. It says, when life gives you lemons, squeeze them in people's eyes. <laughs> Different reactions to disappointment, right? Some different reactions to loss there. Uh, I'm not condoning either of those, but these are, you know, legitimate responses to disappointment and loss. And we're going to be looking at three different responses to disappointment and loss in today's text. And they range from kind of like healthy to, you know, less healthy. And um, to give us some context for where we are in Joseph's story, because we're really just like starting smack dab in the middle of this story, um, we began with looking at his dream, uh, which is really connected to God's dream. God's dream to save the world from this impending doom, which was going to be famine for like the world as they knew it. So God had this dream to save them from that and to continue the thread of God's blessing as God had promised Abraham and Sarah that through their family, all families on earth would be blessed. That's a little hard to do if they're dead, if they died in the famine. So Joseph has this dream, which is connected to God's dream, God's dream to save the world, to keep the thread of blessing alive. And we looked at that, and we also saw how that dream, like his brothers didn't accept it, and there was a lot of, there was a lot of resentment built up there, and his dad didn't, didn't really, oh, they had all these negative uh, patterns of behavior in their family, which, as Pastor Cheryl said in her sermon that one week, it makes it a normal family. <laughs> Joseph's family is, uh, you know, can relate to it, even though there's some really extreme moments about it. One of those extreme moments is that his brothers decide to get rid of them. And they're not just saying that, venting it, they're not writing on Facebook, like, wish I could, you know, sell my brother. They literally do that. They literally sell him to some merchants who are traveling. And uh, we, we pick up the story a couple weeks ago and we find Joseph, he's in Egypt. And the, the way the chapter is written, it, is it, it's bookended. Pastor Yumiko brought us through this wonderful like visual aid. It's bookended by God's presence being with Joseph as he's there in Egypt, a stranger, as he's a slave, as he's working in a member of the court's household. And then the end of the chapter is bookended. You know, it gets even worse. He gets accused of something he didn't 
can't do. He winds up in prison and the chapter bookends with God's presence with him still in that working for good, working to preserve his life, working to keep the dream alive. And then last week we saw this sudden reversal, this immense miracle that Joseph needed, how God provided it for him, how suddenly he had his day in front of Pharaoh, you know, the most, the most powerful ruler of his day, and he was able to do Pharaoh a favor and interpret dreams for him. The dreams were related to that impending doom that God knew about and had sent Joseph, had commissioned him even as a child to be paying attention for, to be able to one day interpret this dream correctly. And Joseph was on it. He interpreted it correctly. The disaster is coming. There's going to be great famine. And he recommended a pharaoh. He gave him some, you know, some leadership. Uh, he gave him a strategy. You need to bring someone on board your team. You need to have them be in charge of like all the extra of food, have them store up stuff. And then when the, the seven years of famine come, they can distribute it as needed. And Pharaoh, I mean, he loved, I think he loved the glitz of being a ruler, but I'm not sure he liked to rule so much because very eagerly he's like, let's have him do it. <laughs> so Joseph went from prison to the palace. Like he went from like chains to like wearing all this bling. <laughs> he had different kinds of chains. He just had this whole reversal in his life from no family in Egypt to suddenly creating and being able to be part of a new family, from being an outcast to being a beloved son of the court, from being someone that uh, power had been taken away from him to being someone who power was being given to him. So we saw this reversal last week and we asked ourselves what kind of reversals we need in our life, what kind of reversals our community or the world needs, what kind of miracles we need from God. And today is, is where we look at the part in his story where he's doing his job, the famine has come, and he's killing it. He's doing great. They've stored up so much food, they can't even count it. And he's distributing it to people as they come. He's just excelling. He's in his sweet spot. And then one day, guess who shows up in front of him? His 10 brothers. Those brothers. The ones who 20 years beforehand had sold him as a slave. Can you even imagine what that must have felt like? How he must have had a rush of adrenaline, maybe of shock, a little bit of horror as these worlds collided. I can't even imagine. It must have been like fight, flight, or freeze. Here they are. He might have felt like a little kid again. Who knows? That'd be a terrifying moment be of worlds colliding. And um, as I think of worlds colliding, I think of this sort of funny video that went viral uh, during the pandemic. And there's a guy being interviewed on a very serious news, news story. And he's giving his very serious news. And then suddenly the door opens and a baby in a walker <laughs> comes in, followed by a toddler and then uh, a mother. Did any of you watch this video? I should have shown it. It's really funny. The mother like runs in and like grabs the kids. And it spawned all these other funny videos where people, you know, spoof as if, what if the mom had been interrupted by the kids, you know? It was great. It was a little like needed, needed moment of levity. But this idea of worlds colliding, this idea of like you're in the middle of your job and then suddenly your personal life just like whoop, <laughs> right? Where you least expect it. And this is where we find Joseph today. Suddenly he's confronted. He's confronted with his past that he had trying, been trying to leave behind. He's confronted with the worst disappointments and loss in his life. They're right there, right in front of him. He can't get away from them. And that's where we pick up today's story. I want to go right to our first fill in the blank before we look at our text. And I encourage you to read the chapter um, in Genesis 42 this week if you get a chance. It's super dramatic. It's kind of exciting. You might not want to stop 
because the ayinet kind of ends un, on a non-resolution. You might want to keep going. That's great, too. But the first fill in your blank in the notes is that uh, disappointments don't come with an expiration date. Right? When Joseph's there and he sees his brothers, he's not like, oh, well, that happened in the past. It doesn't bother me anymore. Disappointments and loss, they don't come with an expiration date. Now, um, growing up overseas, Dan and I, we both um, learned to work with food that might not be at its best. Like, maybe you had a refrigerator, and the refrigerator works really well, but then you have like a brownout or a blackout. So stuff in there is maybe not at its best. But you learn to work with it. So Dan and I, we, we learned to, you know, you smell the food. The milk smells fine. doesn't matter what the expiration date is. You drink it. <laughs> that can of tomatoes, maybe it's not by its best date, this best by date. Maybe it's definitely expired, but if it doesn't make any weird sounds when you open it up, you're good to go. <laughs> smells okay. <laughs> well... Now that I'm older and I've eaten a few things that I wish I hadn't eaten, <laughs> I, I look at expiration dates now. I, I don't even bother to smell that, like, forgotten about half carton of half and half in the back of the fridge. When it's found, I don't even bother to sniff it. I just check the date and I put it right in the trash. Because, I don't know, I've done that already. I'm moving on. But the thing is, is that disappointments, unlike food, they don't come with these expiration dates. It's not like you get this disappointment or loss in your life and it comes stamped with a date that says, by this date, you're going to feel better. By this date, by July, by August, you know you're going to feel great. You don't have that. In the moment, you're living with that disappointment, with that loss. And now, some disappointments do fade, right? Some of them, uh, we forget about them. They lose their potency, or something really good happens afterwards and transforms the way we see that disappointment, like we saw with Keith's story. But other disappointments, especially those that are tied to a deep loss, those disappointments can stay with us. Now, I'm going to be talking about disappointment and loss, and when I say the word disappointment, I just want you to know that I'm defining it as uh, always including loss. I don't think you can have a disappointment without a loss, because it's... Uh, the hope for a future that you wanted that isn't here. There's a loss of that. There's a loss of what you expected or what you hoped for. So within disappointment is always a loss. Now, sometimes there's losses that you knew were coming, you prepared for. They're not really disappointments, but they're still losses. Today, we're really talking about those losses that involve disappointment. This, this loss of what you were hoping for. This loss of what you envisioned. So let's go back to Jake, uh, Joseph. He's there, he's at work, he's doing great when he sees his brothers. How do you begin a conversation with family that rejected you like this, that treated you this way? So Joseph, he, he accuses them of being spies. <laughs> he puts them in a holding cell for a couple days. He's able to calm down a little bit. He gets, buys himself some time. And this is the brother's response. And this, the brother's response here, number one in your notes, this is one of the three ways we find in the text, three responses to disappointment and loss. And the first one we see is to be guided by guilt and shame. Three kinds of responses to loss that we see in this text, three responses to disappointment, is the, is the way the brothers respond. And they were guided by guilt and shame. Let me go ahead and read that text to us. They said to one another, surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, but you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. This is the brothers talking to each other. They're guided by guilt and shame. And the thing is, the brothers are guilty. <laughs> 
they're totally guilty, right? They're not being gaslighted by someone who's saying, oh, you did this terrible thing wrong and really they're innocent. No, these brothers really had done something really horrible. But the thing is, instead of owning the guilt, instead of naming the wrong they had done to their brother, instead of coming clean to their dad, for over 20 years, they shared this secret. And this brought shame. This carried a heavy load, even for them. So disappointment, the hope for a future they had of connection with their dad, maybe now that Joseph's out of the way, that's gone. Because now there's this big lie. They carry this guilt. They carry this shame. They could have told their dad, and maybe there could have been steps made towards restorative justice. Maybe they could have sent Simeon, who you know, is a guy very well acquainted with fighting. He's like a really strong kind of badass guy. They could have sent him to Egypt and maybe Egypt could have tracked him down. Where was Joseph? Where was he? Let me find him. Let me see if I can bring him back home. Let's do right by our brother for the sake of our father, for the sake of God. No, they did not do this. They shared this lie. And because of it, it disconnected them from their father. It made them have to treat their dad with kid gloves all the time, right? Because they had falsely like grieved him to the point where he almost wanted to die. So after that, they had to treat him with kid gloves all the time. Because what if they did one more thing and he really did die? They would never be able to bear that guilt and that shame. So they were stuck. They couldn't even see themselves as promise bearers. They had to treat Jacob like he was last of the line. Because their guilt and their shame had cut them off from God, cut them off from their dad, cut them off from each other and from Joseph. So that's the first response to loss and disappointment we see in the text. It can be guided by guilt and shame. The next response to loss we see in the text is to be stuck in the past. It's to be stuck in the past. Let's go ahead and look at the text. This is going to be Jacob's way. So this is Joseph's dad. We're going to go ahead and pick it up. Um, we're at the part of the story where the brothers have gotten the, they've gotten the grain, and they've been able to go back, go back home. They tell their dad, hey, there's this guy, because they don't know he's Joseph. There's this guy, and he wants to see our other brother. He kept Simeon there, so we'd go back again. And this is Jacob's response. He says, you have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you want to take Benjamin Everything is against me. My son will not go down there with you. He's talking about Benjamin, who's the you know, only other full sibling of Joseph. My son will not go down there with you. His brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm comes to him on the journey you are taking, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in sorrow. This is exactly what Jacob says last time we see him in the text, in Genesis 37. He says, I'm going to go down to the grave in sorrow. And here, he says the same thing. He's kind of stuck. He's been living under the oppressive weight of not knowing where his son is, and I think a sneaking suspicion that his other children knew. A sneaking suspicion. So he's, he's living under this. He doesn't want any more risk. He's stuck. He's stuck in the past. Because he's stuck, he's stuck in other ways too. He continues some cycles of behavior. Instead of favoring Joseph over the rest, now he's favoring Benjamin over the rest. This is his response to disappointment, his response to loss. He's stuck in the past. That brings us to the third response we see in the text. Now, if the first two responses can kind of keep you more stuck, shame and guilt, being stuck in the past, 
The third one kind of offers some freedom. It offers a way forward. And it's Joseph's response to disappointment and loss. And that third response we see is to work through the pain. Work through the pain. And as you read this chapter, you'll see that's exactly what Joseph does. He weeps and grieves. Like, he cries. He physically cries. Sometimes when it feels overwhelming, he has to go back and take a breather, and he does that. He gives himself space. He's working through the pain. He tries some creative solutions to gather information to inform his discernment and paths forward. He doesn't have like a 10-step plan on what to do. He's just trying to, he's trying to get to see his brother, maybe hear more about his dad, maybe find a future in which he can talk to his brothers about what they've done. It's not time yet. He doesn't trust them enough to do that. What if they hurt him even more? But he's working towards the pain. He's taking small steps. He's using creative, creative opportunities to try to find a way forward. Now, if you read this chapter through, you'll see that you know, he accuses them of spies. And actually, when you're reading the text, he says it so many times. You're spies. You're spies. You're spies. And you could just feel his anxiety, the fight or flight in him. As, he, as he's faced with his fear, he's faced with his disappointment and loss, and he wonders, what do I do? I, I need to talk to them. How's my dad? My brother's the only one I can trust, but he's not here. When do they get him to? What do I do? You can just kind of feel that in the text. And at the same time, he's working with his pain. He comes up with a plan. It's a very clever plan because Simon, as we mentioned, uh, Simeon, Simeon is like not the most chill guy. Simeon literally like wiped out a village earlier with another brother. He's kind of like the ringleader who like of a village who harmed his sister. So he's like, he's not afraid to use a sword. So he keeps Simeon in prison. <laughs> Let's not let him out. And then all the rest can go back, go back to the father, br bring the food. And then when you come back again, because he knows it's going to be a long famine, bring Benjamin. This is what he does to work through his pain, work through this inconceivable situation of disappointment and loss he finds himself in. But he works through the pain. And this is where I want to invite us into the story, because we've been talking a lot about Joseph. And that's that, can you and I, can we let our disappointments lead us to hopeful action? Can we let our disappointments lead us to hopeful action? Because each of these decisions that Joseph made, there's kind of hopeful actions. Whether it's letting the tears fall and hoping for a day that he'll be able to stand there and not weep. Whether it's taking a break so that he can better be in the moment. Whether it's keeping Simeon in Egypt hoping that they'll send Benjamin next time. He let his disappointments lead him to hopeful action. And friends, if you feel stuck in guilt or shame, if you feel stuck in the past, what might be a hopeful action you can take? What might be a hopeful action you can take even this week? What if you feel stuck in guilt? Now, I'm going to parse out guilt and shame because they're actually very two different things. And pretty much everything I've learned about guilt and shame, I've learned from Brené Brown, who's a fellow sister in Christ, and she's also done a wonderful TED Talk on listening to shame. She's written many books, including Atlas of the Heart, which I'm not finished yet, but it talks a lot about her research on shame. She's a uh, psychologist. I think she's a social worker for a time. Sorry, I might keep moving this. I think she was a social worker for a time, a professor. I may feel like she's really done everything, so I'll stop talking about her, but she's great. So know that I'm not coming up with this information like a researcher came up with this. <laughs> she's really smart. But she basically says that um, guilt, guilt is the, is the focus on something that was done. And guilt can be healthy and can be adaptive and it can help us point out our values. 
Because it's when that we experience cognitive dissonance. I did this thing, but I don't really believe that that's the right thing to do. I have other values that I feel were violated by this. And I want to do better. I can do better. I am going to make a change. Guilt can lead us to repentance. Guilt can lead us to confession, too. And scripture often ties together confession and healing. Because when you're carrying guilt, you know you've done something wrong. It's not something somebody put on you. It's actually something you did. Sometimes telling a safe person about it, talking to God about it, opens us up for healing. And we're going to get a new microphone. Thank you, Stacy. Okay, this one will have less knocks. I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm doing something. Okay, there we go. Okay, so if you feel stuck in guilt, maybe a way forward, maybe a hopeful action would be to talk about it with someone safe. Maybe it would be to name what you did and offer it to God. Might be to say you're sorry, to receive God's healing and forgiveness. You can't hate yourself into changing. And with confession can come grace and love and goodness. What might be an action you can take if you feel stuck in guilt? Think about that for a minute. There's this great poem I saw earlier in the week. I'm going to try to pull it up. It's a poem out of a book. Not to post it because I can't remember the book it was taken from. It says, you should dance with the skeletons in your closet. Learn their names so you can ask them to leave. Have coffee with your demons. <laughs> oh, don't say that in a charismatic setting. <laughs> ask them important questions like, what keeps you here? Learn what doors they keep finding open and kick them out. Isn't that fantastic? That's a way of listening to that shadowy side of ourselves, where there might be some guilt, maybe even some shame. Now, if you feel stuck in shame, let's talk about that for a second. What might be a hopeful action? Now, if guilt says, I did something bad, shame says, I am bad. See that difference there? Um, Brene Brown, she calls herself like a, a researcher of shame even. And she talks about how if you put shame in a Petri dish, it needs three things to grow exponentially. It needs secrecy, it needs silence, and it needs judgment. And then that can lead to all kinds of maladaptive and unhealthy things. Shame, whether it's something someone did to you, something you've internalized, could be through no fault of your own, through secrecy, through silence, and judgment, it grows, and you become toxic. Now, she says if you put that same amount of shame in a Petri dish, and you douse it with empathy, can you just imagine that? It can't survive, the shame disappears, it dissolves. Because empathy is the antidote to shame. Empathy is the antidote for shame. This is why when Joseph is able to talk to his brothers, eventually, we'll get to there later, we're gonna see some empathy in the story. We're gonna see some connection. We're not there yet though, I'm jumping ahead, okay. We're not in Easter yet. <laughs> Pastor Dan will do that. But for, for you and I, if we feel stuck in shame, if we can find a safe person, if we can find a therapist, maybe a pastor, a friend you know that's very non-judgmental, that's a good listener, if you can talk with God one day to alleviate some of that secrecy, that silence, you can experience the empathy of God. And if you feel stuck, you don't have to feel stuck. Come after worship with us. We're going to be anointing with oil and praying and blessing. This could be a day that you feel less shame. 
Now, what's a hopeful action if you feel stuck in the past? Let's talk about that for a quick second. What might be a hopeful action if you feel stuck in the past? Maybe you've noticed yourself like replaying conversations again and again, or maybe um, going through the same situation in your mind. And this is something to not feel shame about or blame, but rather to be gentle to yourself with. It's an invitation to lean into the present where God is at work even now and invites. God who can create peace with the past and presence in the present and hope for the future. One of the cool things I learned about the brain um, during the uh, last couple years of COVID, I've been doing a little bit more reading in um, just different genres I don't normally read in. And I was reading about the, uh, the I'm going to try to get the, the name right, it is the neuroplasticity of brains. So apparently brains uh, have this thing called neuroplasticity that we're created with, and it's this ability to create new, new neural pathways. Because sometimes when we find ourselves stuck, stuck thinking the same thoughts again and again, stuck using the same, you know, adaptive or maladaptive practices, we're like, you know, stuck. It's because actually we're going through the same routes in our brain. Did you know that? Your brain actually can get a little... I don't want to say lazy, but our brains like to, they like um, peace and harmony maybe, I don't know. They like patterns, maybe they like patterns, I don't know. I haven't done enough reading yet. But I do know that once they create a neural pathway, it's easier to go there. The amazing thing about the way God created us is that we can create new neural pathways. Therapy can help do that with a cognitive behavioral therapy or EMDR. Um, Praying, meditation, that can totally create new neural pathways in the brain. God is amazing with the way God works. We don't have to be stuck. We can think new thoughts. We can grow new ways of being so that we can be different in the future than we've been in the past. I remember um, after our son passed away in 2010, um, for much of 2011, I wound up... Um, I was really overwhelmed with life, and I was really, I was really bereft. I still am. But one of the things that grief was, was really hard for me that year was just the constant feelings of overwhelm. And I think like whether you've experienced like big losses, there's all different kinds of big losses, big disappointments in life, it can feel really overwhelming, whether you're caregiving or whether you've just said goodbye to somebody that you don't want to say goodbye to, or you're, you know, things are changing in your, in your family, and a relationship is breaking up, like you lost your job. The feeling of overwhelm is real. And I had a spiritual director at the time and she recommended that I start centering prayer, which was to set a timer for 20 minutes every day. Um, and I didn't have a phone, a smartphone at the time, so I had to use like the oven. <laughs> set a timer for 20 minutes and in that 20 minutes, just be. I, don't, I didn't think about anything, I didn't say any prayers. I didn't like envision God with me, but instead I just tried to simply be. And I envisioned thoughts as they came, I would just release them. And somehow that helped me feel less stuck, less overwhelmed, as my soul was able to sense the presence of God there, a presence that can transcend thought and reason, that can create new neural pathways when you're stuck. And friends, if you're stuck, there is help. There is hope. If you decide, hey, you know, you really need counseling, that would be great. Maybe you don't have, uh, you can't afford the copay. Maybe you don't have insurance. Your insurance doesn't cover it. Please, let us staff at Wellspring know. We have a benevolence fund that every month generous friends give to. And if you know that you need some mental health support, but you can't afford that copay, 
talk to us. We can help with that. If you need recommendations for a counselor, we know many. There's some amazing ones here. Talk to us. Let us know. We'd love to help with that. What's a hopeful action you can take this week if you feel stuck in the past? The Sunday, the Sunday is a special Sunday, Palm Sunday. It begins Holy Week, where we remember the hopeful action of God, because God is no stranger to disappointment and loss. God responds to disappointment and loss with hopeful action all the time. We see in Genesis 6, God is actually regretful that God created humans. God regrets that God created humans because they're so violent, so evil. They're being so mean to each other. I can just imagine God is having a bad parenting day. And they're like, ah, why did I make you? You were so good and it's not so good anymore. (laughs) Just like the frustration, disappointment of God. You know what God does? God responds to God's own disappointment with hopeful action. God promises not to give up on humanity and sends this rainbow, a sign of a promise that I will not destroy you. I am going to keep contending for you. God found a family to be able to carry God's thread of blessing forward in the world, right? God found the family of Abraham and Sarah promise to bless them, and God's hopeful threads are kept alive all throughout scripture. We see them in Joseph's story moving onward all the way to Jesus as God becomes a vulnerable human, drives away shame with God's own empathy and compassion, carries our guilt so we can find forgiveness, whatever we have done. God responds to disappointment with hopeful action. God's hopeful action continues after the resurrection as God invites us not to be stuck in the past, that death is not the end, that God can create new life out of the ashes. God is a hopeful God. This Friday, we're going to remember perhaps God's most hopeful action of all, which is choosing to turn humanity's rejection of God into the very vehicle of salvation. The cross looks like an end. It looks like the no of humanity to incarnate love. It looks like hell on earth, but it becomes God's way to save and include all who will come. That's hope. That's hopeful action for you. In hope, God's deep and affectionate yes to you emerges. In hope, God offers forgiveness for any and all guilt. In hope, God shares God's endless empathy with us as an antidote for shame. In hope, God offers us eternal life so death does not separate forever. In hope, God works justice for the oppressed and brings miracles and reverses seemingly irreversible situations. In hope, God brings solace to the suffering. In hope, God meets us even in our inconsolable pain with God's own pain and God's own rising. Friends, God is the most hopeful being in the universe. Scripture tells us that love always hopes, always protects, always perseveres. And we know that God is love, and that makes God a hopeful God, a persevering God, a protecting God. This Holy Week, this is a great chance to experience the hopefulness, the hopeful gifts of God for whatever our disappointments for whatever ways we're responding to it, whether it be like Calvin and Hobbes or squeezing lemons in people's eyes or whether we be stuck like the father Jacob or, or in guilt and shame like the brothers or trying to work through pain like Joseph. This is the week, friends. God's hopeful action meets us.
Over the last couple Sundays in Lent, we've had some candles lit, and sometimes they're over here, today they're over by the cross. And today, we are actually going to give you a candle. When you come up to receive communion, we have a candle for you. And these lit candles have represented our unfinished stories. They represented the way that God is with us, working for good, even when we can't see it. And today, we have a glass candle, and on many of them, there's a symbol of a cross. This cross can be seen as the expression of our deepest disappointment when faced with a God who behaved in ways we did not expect. It's also the expression of God's biggest hope, to pin the salvation of the world on our failings. God meant even that for good. Let's pray. Ever-living and ever-loving God, whose forgiveness knows no bounds for any guilt, whose empathy and compassion can dissolve any shame, who works through pain in hopeful ways to bring us into union, into communion, into goodness. Be with us this week as we journey with you. Encourage us towards hopeful action in our own disappointments, in our own losses. Thank you for meeting us there with your very life, given for all. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.